Well, this will actually conclude our series on what a healthy church member is. I'll be gone next week, but then on the 5th, we're actually going to do one of two um, new members in, induction, inductions. We have four families coming in as members of Redeemer. So this is, this is partially why we did this series, to remind us all what a healthy church member is. When I come back on the 5th, we'll go back to doing 1 Samuel. We'll take up in 1 Samuel where we left off in the spring. So if you have a Bible, if you open it with me, the, the text for this morning is in Hebrews chapter 13. It's verse 7 and 17. I'm going to read those, but I'm just going to first say uh, this is one of those sermons where I'm going to read these texts, and then I'm going to talk for a while, and everyone's going to wonder what in the world does this have to do with the text that he read. <laughs> but I promise, I promise, Lord knows, right? Lord knows. I promise we'll come back to it in the end, and it will all make sense. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 and 17. This is the word of the Lord. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the book of Hebrews for the ministry of Paul, Lord God, for his words, instructing us how to be good churchmen, healthy churchmen. We pray, Lord, as we open your word now, that you would reveal our sin to us, that you will comfort us and convict us in exactly the way that each of us need, for you know the, um, exactly what it is that each of us needs. I pray, God, that you would help us uh, to put on Christ, put, to renew our minds, to be clean in our hearts, to have clean hands, to serve and love you with our whole heart and with our whole strength. We thank you for this gathering of saints this morning, and we pray, Lord God, that we would truly be thankful deep in our hearts for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Now, like many aspects of the Christian life, we at times set things at odds with one another that are never meant to be at odds. We, We create difficulties. We create dichotomies. We pit things against one another as if we are watching a dogfight. Things that God never intended for us to pit against one another. Faith and works. Unity and diversity. Doctrinal purity versus unity. Gospel and law. These are all things throughout history that Christians have pitted against one another that the Lord never intended to be at odds. Now, another one of these is the difference the emphasis of the universal church versus the local church. Some of us are like, we don't need a local church. We don't need a local church membership. It's not about that. It's about the universal church. It's about the big church. It's about all Christians all over the world all the time. There are many people who think they don't need a local church because they know Christians and they live amongst Christians. And and what we need to understand is that these two things are not meant to be opposed to one another. You, you who are saints, you who are baptized, you who are the children of God, need the universal church, need to understand what it means to be a member of the universal church, and subsequently, you need to understand that you need the local church, what it means to be a member of the local church, a healthy member of the local church. Now, I want to just say something, because when you study a lot of theology, you get used to certain things. I say the word Catholic, and what that word means is universal. I just want to put that out there. That can sometimes scare people. I'm not, I'm not going back to Rome, okay? I'll go as far as Geneva and no further. <laughs> Roman Catholic is, is even funnier because Catholic means universal, but Rome is a location. So it's a contradiction in terms, but that's for another day. Catholic means universal. In the creed, when we say, I believe in one Catholic church, it's a small c Catholic. It means the universal church. So if I slip back and forth, just I want everyone to understand what I'm doing. Okay. Now, here's my question, though. This is what we're going to be exploring. What is your primary responsibility when it comes to the household of God? Is it the universal church or the local church? And when we say local, what do we mean by that? This is another thing that a lot of Christians, uh, has con- it's confused us for a long time. When I say local, do I mean a city? Do I mean a state? Do I mean a nation? Do I mean a neighborhood? Do I mean a community group within a church? When I went to, re- um, to Mars Hill years ago. My church was my community group. And then we just all, all the community groups gathered on Sunday morning to worship the Lord together in Ballard. Now, what is the distinction between the local and universal church? How is it the same and how is it different? How does my being a member of one affect, if at all, my membership in the other? 
Now, if I'm a member of the universal church, isn't that enough? Why do small churches like ours have a membership? What's it all about? It's, uh, it's interesting, especially because when there's, when there's ever conflict, <laughs> right? It, you know what has never worked? If you, if you have a saint that you're dealing with who won't repent of sins, or you know what never works is saying, oh, well, you signed a membership covenant, so you better start obeying. <laughs> like, that never works. So it sometimes seems like this big, hollow, kind of meaningless, bureaucratic thing that we do. But it's not. It really isn't. There is a reason for it, and that's what I want us to understand so that we can be healthy members of the local church. Now, to determine why we do membership within the local church, we first must look at the larger concept of the universal church, the Catholic church, and work our way from that down to the local church. So you start big, the church overall, and then you work your way down to what the local church ought to be in reflection of that. So confusion over the word church exists because of its various uses in the the Bible. It's not a shock, right? It's not shocking that we're confused by this word because the apostles tend not themselves to know what it means. (laughs) They use it in all these different ways. And, And what I love about the Christian faith is you're supposed to eventually notice that they're using the same word in different ways, like baptism. That's another, that's one for another time. Why are they using the same word in all these different ways? One of the uses is found in Hebrews chapter 12. And I know this is one of Joel's favorite passages, so here you go, Joel. Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you have come, you, all of you, Paul is talking to, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what in the world is he talking about? He's talking to local Christians, and he wants to remind them of what they're doing on Sunday morning. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. We don't have a temple anymore. We don't have the sacrificial system anymore. We have Jesus. We have his temple. And when we are gathering together as saints, what we need to understand is that we aren't just in some dumpy strip mall in Linwood. Now look around. Everybody look around. This is a nice, Byron, you've done a fantastic job, by the way. It looks beautiful in here. But does this look like the heavenly Jerusalem? Does this look like the inner sanctum of God's temple in heaven? No. Right? I'm looking around. You guys look nice. Do we look like angels in festal (laughs) clothing? And this is why Christians sound like nuts. Because Paul is telling us that, yes, you might be sitting in a dumpy strip mall in Linwood, but by the Spirit, where are you really right now? Where are we right now? And and one of the things, right, this is the source of our strength. This is the source of our power. This is the source of our joy. We are not just sitting in some dumpy strip mall. We are sitting in the inner sanctuary before the throne of the living God, amongst his angels, amongst his, it says, his church, his church of perfected saints, his church of angels, his church of you and me. And so what he's talking about is this gathering of people that spans time, spans distances, spans locations, generations, tongues. He's talking about the fact that every Sunday we get to participate in the end. We get to participate together in what's going to happen to all of us at the very end when we are all resurrected and we all go before the face of God as a perfected body. We get a taste of it. Now, why would he do that? Because the, the other six days, this is not where we are. <laughs> the other six days, we may be bearing the spirit of God. We may be before his face, but it, we're not together. And we're not together with the universal church. So this is the church that you belong to. It spans time. It spans distance. It spans tongues. What we are hoping for is that. That's our hope. And so he wants to feed us as we go. He wants to remind us as we go, as we're marching along, as we're going out there, living and dying in this world, he wants us to remember where we're headed. And where we're headed is described in Ephesians chapter 5. And this is what he says. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what he is doing to us. Now, I know what you went through this week. You know why I know? Because I went through it myself. And so when you think, without blemish, without spot, without wrinkle, what in the what? And where we are headed is not right where we feel like we are every day of every week. 
And so we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of whom, whom we belong and who we belong there with. These people all around you are also likewise going to be with you forever. Paul says in Hebrews, by the Spirit, we anticipate the end, the gathering at the very end of time. We're getting a taste of it now, by the Spirit. From the first moment of your regeneration, when you're first born again, you are incorporated into a great body, a great host, taken up into a rich fellowship. You are a member of a new nation, a citizen of a spiritual kingdom whose king is glorious in the multitude of his subjects. Now, can you imagine for a moment, right? I love graveyards for this reason. My wife is, is, always thinks it's funny. I go to a graveyard and I think, this is going to be a nice place to be resurrected. This is a beautiful spot, right? When you... All those long years, you come up out of the ground, and this is the beautiful thing you're going to see. If there's a real, I, Whidbey Island, please bury me there, because you're going to wake up with a view of the sea and the mountains behind it. It's going to be beautiful. But what you're also going to see, right, are, are, are the Japanese and their clothing. You're going to see people from the Middle Ages and people from Rome and people from distant futures, and we're all going to be in these various clothings. And, we're, and we will, for a moment, think, well, we won't be able to understand one another because our language is confused, but we will all speak one language together. And we will see not only these beautiful places where we'll be resurrected, but the face of the living God. Now, do you, is that hard to believe? Right? It's as hard to believe as that that's where you're sitting now. But, but this is what makes us crazy. This, this is the thing we're clinging on to. This is the thing we're putting our hope into. This is what we're drawing our strength from. It is not about what you can see with your physical eyes. It's about what God wants you to see with your eyes your, your faith, eyes of faith, your spiritual eyes. The universal church consists of every believer from Adam to the last man converted before Jesus comes back. In their entirety, this is the body of Christ of which Jesus is the head. The church is the house or temple of the Lord. Jesus is the blueprint for a new temple for which you are all a part. Okay? When we talk about the fact that we're, where we are by the Spirit, we also have to understand what it is we're being made into. There is a blueprint in heaven. Just imagine God the Father in heaven. There he is with his giant scroll. And he's building a church. And you know what the picture is, the blueprint? Jesus. That's the temple. That's the thing that you're being brought into. That's the thing that you're being reshaped and remolded so that you fit perfectly in that. This is the blueprint, Jesus. It says in Ephesians chapter 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, is that how you typically feel? Right? These are the realities that we need to hold on to. This is the thing that we all need to get into our minds because what we often forget is who we are, who he is, and, and what we owe to one another. Right? Because those people sitting next to you are not just people. They are living stones. They are part of God's household. You all together are the body of Christ. You are being built into his temple together. 1 Peter chapter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are precious in the sight of God. When you are offering sacrifices, you're not just offering them to one another. You're not just offering them to your wife or your husband or your children or your neighbors. You are offering sacrifices to the Lord Jesus, and he accepts them. Right? Where, where do we go? We go to the, the temple in heaven. That's where we're transported to by the Spirit. We are lifted there by the Spirit. And, and so what we are doing when we're offering sacrifices is we're putting it on the altar in heaven, offering it up to the Lord Jesus. And he's standing there and he says, this is precious to me and I accept this. That's who you are. That's what you're doing when you're out there doing works of service. That is what you're doing when you're out there loving the unlovely and forgiving things that ought not to be forgiven. When you're walking in holiness, this is what it's all about. In God's purpose, there is only one church, one gathering of all believers under the headship of Christ, which is an eschatological reality eschatological reality. I practiced that one several times this week. 
Now, the eschaton is the end. Right? This is what Jesus did, right? He, everyone thought, all the Jews were like, you know what? Someday there's going to be this resurrection. And, and, and this is why Jesus was so confusing to the Jews, because they thought it comes at the very end. And what Jesus did is he took the end of history when everything is perfected and wonderful and perfect in the sight of God, and he invaded it into the middle of human history. His resurrection was the beginning. His resurrection was the beachhead in, in which the king now is going out and conquering the whole world. He invaded history with the end. We know the end of the story. We know what's going to happen to all of us. There is no pain and death, there is, right? There is pain and suffering here in this world, and he, in a moment, is going to wash it all away. And what he wanted, right, is instead of just snapping his fingers and making this perfect eschatological temple, <laughs> he, this, is the, this is the process. He invades the, the middle of history with the end to instruct us as to what it is that we're doing. Because this is the way that you perfect and cleanse people. He doesn't, just want, he doesn't want to just snap his fingers and make it that easy for you. <laughs> he wants to say, hey, listen, I, I just, I'm going to do something crazy. You know when you're meeting in catacombs in Rome and everybody's hunting you down? You're not really in catacombs. You're in the temple in heaven, worshiping the Lord God in person. You know what? You know what? If you're meeting in some dumpy strip mall in Linwood and, and, and the state is hunting you down, which there are, we're going to see very soon, I think, I want you to realize that you're not just in some dumpy strip mall. And, and when you go out and you realize that this is what you're doing, this is who you are, this is who you're offering sacrifices to, that you're precious in his sight, it completely changes how you live. And that is the process that God is using to change this world. Perfecting us through suffering, perfecting us through repentance, re- perfecting us through understanding that we are not God, but that he has made himself available to us and invites us to join in this great story where we die to ourselves and live for him. Right? This is the blueprint. Jesus is the model. He is the model. He is the one demonstrating how, it's supposed, how, how a Christian is supposed to live. Now, you guys have heard me say this before. Right? But this blueprint that, that, that God the Father is using that looks like Jesus, we, we, we can... It, it, if you just gave someone a blueprint, someone like me, I would have no idea what I'm looking at. I would look at the blueprint and I'd be like, I have no idea. What is this? Is this a barn? Is this a house? Is this a skyscraper? I have no idea what this is. But when you put a biography in my hand and you say, here, this is a blueprint of a godly life. Now, a person like me, I'd read that biography and I'd be like, I know exactly what we're supposed to do. And, and this is why Jesus didn't just come to die. If all Jesus came to do was die, Herod's soldiers could have killed him in the manger, and snippity-snappity, there we go, everybody's saved. But Jesus lived a life that God wants us to imitate. He says, here, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and offer sacrifices to me. I want you to see with eyes of faith, not with eyes of flesh. I want you to obey me unto death. And, And we think, well, what does that look like? And you open the Gospels, and you see it. You see a blueprint for godly living. That's what God wants. Now, before we get too further with that, as I'm jumping the gun a little bit, is there any other time that the word church is used in the New Testament that causes us to be confused? Right? I, I'm painting this massive, this picture, this huge picture of this huge temple made of all people and all ages that are Christians. But that's not the only way that the word is used. The word is used again in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 18, in this way. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that you are div- there are divisions among you. So this word that was previously used, this eschatological reality, is used for some people who live in the city called Corinth. Later in, in the book of Colossians, Paul says, Give my greetings to the brothers at, at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Well, how do you fit an eschatological church in somebody's house? Well, how do you take people from a dumpy strip home and put them in heaven? Right? So this word church is used in a particular way. And the reason for this is because the word meant something before the New Testament authors used it. Now, this is often very helpful to me when you know, the Greek language existed before they wrote the New Testament. So before the New Testament, what they would use this word ecclesia, which is the word in Greek that's translated as church, they would use it as a gathering. 
So, right, if the civic gathering, they would call it the Ecclesia of Rome. They would call that when, when troops would gather together the 508th Infantry Division, they would say, this is the Ecclesia of the 508th Infantry Division. And so you have this gathering of people, and they call it an Ecclesia. And this is why this word church can be used here, there, and everywhere for any gathering of believers. Because an ecclesia of Christians in a house and the ecclesia of Christians in the eschaton, both are the church. And this is why a great number of people are confused. This is why people get all mixed up in their heads about what is it? Is it a big thing, eschatological thing, a universal thing, or is it a bunch of people hanging out in a house? And and what we have to understand is that there isn't supposed to be confusion here. When we are gathered together here, as I said in the beginning, it's not just us, is it? Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be. And when, where he is, the whole church is. This is why, right, when you're standing with Christ, when you, right, that's all you need. If you're standing with Christ, you're a majority. But on top of that, in him are all believers. In him are all saints, all Christians. He's the blueprint for, for human history, and he's the blueprint for every human, uh, every human life. He's the blueprint for the whole church all together at the end, and he's the blueprint for the local church that only meets in a tiny house. And, and, and now, going back, because I was jumping ahead of myself, this is the blueprint that we're using. We're being built up, this church, each one of you is a living stone, being united to one another, to be a living stone that's united to other churches and and so on and so forth until you get the end product. Now, the blueprint is always Jesus, no matter what we're talking about, big church or small church. Any gathering of saints, you can call an ecclesia. That's why the um, apostles use the word that way. And what God wants for us to do is to build one another up into the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a life worthy of imitation, and what what he wants to do is instruct us in the way that we are to live out that Christian life. In John chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus says, Love one another just as I have loved you. Paul tells us in Ephesians to forgive one another as God has forgiven you. In 1 Peter, we're told to to be holy as God is holy. Now, where do we learn to do that? Right? Where is the blueprint for holy living? Where is the blueprint for forgiving people that really don't deserve it? Where is the blueprint for loving people who don't deserve it? It's in the life of Jesus. We're supposed to imitate him. That's what, that's what the Lord God wants. We said the image of Christ before us, and as we do that, Paul says in Corinthians, we're transformed from one image of glory to the next. We become more and more and more that eschatological bride at the end. It's not, right? Now, it's hard to believe a little bit. What, when I hear things like this, I get confused. And I think that somehow we are going to be perfect. What I have a hard time believing is I'm going to be perfect. What I have a harder time believing is when I know a Christian personally, I really have a hard time believing they're going to be perfect. And I think what we, we get lost in all of this big picture stuff is the people sitting next to us. This is what, right? The the church, the local church, is where you get these big ideas fleshed out incarnationally. Jesus wants you to say, listen, this is, it sounds awesome that you're going to be perfected. But you know what perfected means is when that person in the church parking lot backs into you and and you either handle it like Jesus would handle it or you don't. Your your kid comes in and, and, and you're busy and you're trying to get ready for church and he's disrupting you and he's, he's, um, giving you a hard time, and he's distracting you, and you either treat him like Christ would treat him, or you don't. You go to somebody's house, and you can tell that a couple that you're visiting is, is not getting along. Now, what, right? That's what I'm talking about. You want to talk about being perfected. We all love that idea. But what it actually requires is iron sharpening iron. What it actually requires is two lives becoming into friction and the hard parts being rubbed off. So that's why just having a universal church doesn't do any good for you. I, I've said this before. I can sit at home and listen to the best sermons of our age. And you know that pastor will never tell me a specific sin that I'm, troubling, uh, that I'm having trouble with. Do you know why? Because he has no idea, right? There's my computer screen. I'm like, hey, Jeff Durbin, you, ha- you got nothing, buddy. You're like, oh, but you're giving me some universal truth that sounds amazing. And you think, wow, we're part of the church. This is why you need a local church. 
because that's where the unlovely people are. That's where the hypocrites are. This is why I love it. My, I, I, I have a person that I know. They may or may not be related to me through marriage. And, and what I love is when they, he tells me, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. And I'm like, amen, brother. That's exactly why I go there, because it is full of hypocrites. And I only stay at this particular church because those people have no problem telling me that they're hypocrites. Right? I'm like, I belong with the hypocrites. You know where I belong, as Jared said this morning? With other people who realize that my nature is something that is awful and that needs to be remade. Now, give me those people. And again, we, I say this stuff, and it sounds fantastic. But now invite somebody over into your house and say, hey, let's study Romans together. Let's study Proverbs together. And what we'll do is we'll highlight every one of them that we need to learn in our heart of hearts, in our minds. Be like, I'm just going to take the book of Proverbs in this bucket of highlighter and just... (laughs) And that's why we have to see beyond the the universal reality to 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 the here and now, boots on the ground version of this. There's a reason, historically, you call it the church militant, because we're always fighting. <laughs> right? A real church, really dealing with sin, has issues. Um, just like married couple. We just got done um, doing pre-marriage counseling for one of the sweetest, like, fantastic couples. It was so easy. I'm sorry. It was Drew and Natalie. And I was like, man, I wish they were all... <laughs> this is the kind of material that people ought to be producing. I'm bursting the lilies, but this is my point. Right? We live amongst people like this so we can see how things ought to be done. And I just remember, that always, I get to relive this moment where I'm like, man, you have to make sure that you're fighting on a regular basis. And the young married couples, like, or, you know, unmarried couple are like, whatever, what are you talking about? It's like, yeah, you got to, on a regular basis, if you're not addressing things, if your house is nothing but peace year after year after year, you have got a serious problem. <laughs> because what God intends for us to do is go out and be confrontational in a certain way. And this is why Jesus is so confusing to us. This is why he lived a Christian life, so we can see what it looks like. Is Jesus non-confrontational? No. Right? The big answer to that is no. Is he a jerk, though? Did he commit sins, though? Well, no. So there's a way to be confrontational in a a way that's gracious in building one another up. And, And he's the blueprint. That's what we're going for. That's why you need to remember that you're being perfected in this eschatological sense but it's in the local church with real people whose last names you know. Now, the other thing I want to say about the, the, the direct correlation between the, the church universal and the local church is the fact that Jesus knows who his people are. Uh, this, this idea of the brotherhood of all men is crap. Okay? All humanity is not just one big giant brotherhood. It's not. If you don't believe me, let's go down to a BLM rally and, and, and start saying blue lives matter. What you're going to see is, 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 is fighting, right? What you're going to see is that there, is, there are radically different worldviews in conflict all the time. And it's not the kind of conflict that edifies anyone, right? You, we can go to Chicago and interview some people whose places were burned down, right? We, are, we have a household that conducts its business in a particular way. And, and what God wants to do is identify those people who belong in his household. He says, okay, here's what you've got to do. If you want to join my household, get baptized. He says, the sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. So at, at various times in our lives, all of us sitting here heard the voice of God, recognized it as the shepherd, and we are now following him. And because we're obedient to him, we say, okay, make me a member of your household. And so he baptizes them because he, there is a difference between his sheep and sheep that are not of his flock. If we talk about anything, sexual ethics, identity politics, rather women should serve in the military, we get into all kinds of areas where the, the, the Bible explains to us how and what we're supposed to be doing, and there are those people who think the Bible is stupid, that the Bible is for a bunch of backward hayseeds. Right? There is a difference between the household of God and the household, that household that does not belong to God. And a lot of us have forgotten it over the last couple of decades. And it's on display front and center now that there is a difference. There is a difference. And, and what Jesus wants to do is signify who those um, people who are his and those people who are not. He wants to make a distinction. <laughs> He's not any different than he was in the Old Testament. 
right? Jews are going to wear a certain kind of clothing. Jews are going to act a certain kind of way. They're going to eat a certain kind of food. They're going to conduct themselves a certain kind of way with slavery and servants and Sabbaths and all these things. And New, New Testament Christians are like, no, 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 no. We're all the same now. We're all just, you know, people searching for truth. We're all sinners in need of saving. And that part is actually true. But there is actually a distinction made between the household of God and those who are not of the household of God. Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism unto death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Not that dead life that you had before, but a newness of life, a life in Christ, a life shaped by Christ. In Colossians, it says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, we've had conversations like this before. Especially right now, there's a heavy hand on some of us when it comes to physical illnesses. And I can, dim- I, I can tell you right now, having dealt with sick people in the past who are not believers, there is a difference. There is a difference in the way that we suffer versus the way the world suffers. There is a difference between the way that we endure pain and tribulation and and a lack of understanding of our circumstances that's different from the way the world is supposed to do it. I've been asked before, why are you people so happy right now? Right? Why is there so much joy going on over there right now? Well, we're abounding in thanksgiving because this world that you can see with your physical eyes isn't the only world that we're talking about. Because what you are talking about right now, what you see us enduring is temporary. Do you know what's permanent? Jesus is permanent. You know what's permanent? The temple in heaven, that's permanent. You know what's permanent? My unity with believers, no matter what you do to me, I'm united to them and with them to Christ, and that can't be shaken. That can't be moved. And we know that we belong to him, no matter what the world does to us or says to us. This is the thing that we have to understand. We are the household of God. There is a distinction amongst us. There is a blueprint for the way that we're supposed to be living. And all of these things that I've been saying now comes down into the local church. Membership in the local church is not something that John Calvin and some guys got together in Geneva in in the 17th century and just made up out of nothing. Right? It's not something that the CREC Presbytery just made up a few years ago. Church membership is long-standing, and it extends out of the way that the Lord Jesus organizes his whole household. We're organizing our little household the way he's organizing his larger household. God has provided a blueprint for what the local church is, and what Jesus wants is the church to build itself up into the temple of the Lord, taking its place in the larger temple of the universal church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Now think about that for a moment. Who's building the house of God? Well, God is, but we're also his fellow workers. And this is one of the beautiful tensions about the Christian life. Who's doing it? Who's doing it? I say this all the time. I write sermons, and I can write the best sermon I've ever written in my life. And you know what that doesn't make it? Good preaching. Right? This is a plowed field, and I'm just begging for rain to fall on it. Just like a farmer out there with his plow digging in the ground, he, can, he has to do all the work. What happens if he doesn't do any of the work? Right? He's not just going to sit on his back porch, sip on sweet tea, thinking that the cornfield is going to plant itself. He's got to get out there and do it. But what happens if no rain falls from heaven? This is the Christian life. You can't sit around waiting for God to do it all. And you have to understand that no matter what you do, you're still dependent upon him in the end. Now, that's a a tension I wish somebody would have explained to me at the beginning. Because I just came into the Christian life like, oh, it's all going to be, yeah. (laughs) And you're like, what do you mean I got to plow? What do you mean I got to weed? What do you mean that it, it requires rain to fall from heaven? But in this building project, there are foremen. Right? The Lord Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, always has a hierarchy because the tr- Trinitarian God is the Trinitarian God. 
He has given us spiritual gifts as individual Christians. He's given us foremen for the task of building this edifice. 1 Corinthians 14.40. But, but all things should be done decently and in order. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Paul left Titus in Crete to put the church in order. Similarly, Timothy was left in Ephesus to appoint elders and deacons to put things in order. The spiritual and universal cosmic church does not meet physically together this side of glory in the resurrection, but locally Christians are called to gather so that they can use their gifts to serve one another in good order, building up the body of Christ, the temple of the Lord. As we covered two sermons ago, I'm just going to repeat it now. Ephesians 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. You are God's fellow workers. The responsibility of your elders and deacons is to tell you what it is you're building and how you're building it. The Lord has a blueprint for his body, and it's the Lord Jesus. It's not the officers themselves. This is, right? this is a, there is a great physician, and I am simply a nurse. I'm like, the doctor will see you now. I'm limited in what I can do because I'm not a doctor. I'm simply a nurse. I'm just going to show you in here, and the doctor can tell you what the doctor is going to tell you. I didn't write the blueprint. I was simply given a copy of it and try as I may, trying to discern exactly what it is we're supposed to do to build it. Preachers and teachers, evangelists, must know their people so that the teaching is specific to their circumstances. This is what I was saying earlier. Okay, you can go online and you can hear fantastic sermons. You can hear great podcasts. You can go down to Crossway and buy books by the truckload. But nothing is going to work on you like a man who is himself a sinner who knows your sin. That's, right, to know and to be known. That is what we're talking about. Jesus made, added a layer, of con, a layer of complexity to this because he doesn't just say, imitate me. He said, imitate those who imitate me. Now, okay, I'm all, I'm all for imitating Jesus. That's fine, I'll do it. But imitating people who imitate Jesus? Uh, have you met these people? <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Okay, now wait a minute. That's Paul, Mike. So you're telling me we're supposed to imitate Joel the way we imitate Paul? Yes, that is what I'm telling you. Be imitators of your elders and deacons as long as they're being imitators of Christ. And if they're not, then address that. Do you know why? Because you're here, we're here to perfect one another. We're here to deal with one another's issues. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Here we go. The text that I started with at the very beginning that I promised we would come back to. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, this is why you have church membership. I say, right, the, the word of God says to remember your leaders and to consider their way of life. Is it, now, if you, how many of you guys know of Sinclair Ferguson or Mark Driscoll, right? Okay, you raise your hand. There's one person who knows Sinclair Ferguson. You, you fill in the blank with any person that you like who is a spiritual teacher, a Christian teacher. Are you hearing their doctrine or are you seeing their life? Now, how much harder is it on everyone for the leaders having to live a certain way and other people having to imitate that way of living? Now we're talking about sanctification. Now we're talking the rubber meets the road. Now we're talking about conflict that's going to get us somewhere. You can't consider the way of life of a person you don't know. This limits the size and scope of a local church. If a church is so big that you don't know the outcome of your elder's life, then the church is out of order. It's too big or too poorly organized or both. Just as Jesus lived a life for his people to imitate, he provides leaders who are worthy of imitation. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. So I exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples for the flock. Now, how much pressure does that put on all of us? How much grace do you need to do that? How much love and compassion do you need to be people trying to live a life worthy of imitation, knowing what you're actually like, 
and for people who actually know what you're like to then imitate you, right? I, I need to lie down. <laughs> the Lord Jesus said in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. That's why you have church membership. Because elders and officers and the deacons as well, they need to be known because you need to consider their outcome of life. You need to watch what they're doing and how they're living and say, yeah, no, I'm not going to follow that guy. I'm not. I'm not following that guy. Or, (laughs) man, that guy needs some work. Let me go and meet with him and talk to him about what he needs to work on. Or, you need to get over yourself. It's only one of three possibilities. If your elders and deacons are not worthy of imitation, you either need to sit down and talk to them, or somebody has got to go. And I have no problem living with this kind of pressure. But what we have to understand is that we're not then playing at church. We're not playing at some social club that meets on Sundays. We're talking about death and resurrection. We're talking about grace. We're talking about compassion. We're talking about the gospel. Now, I I have here (laughs) the qualifications for both elders and deacons. I suggest that you read them. It's in the book of Titus and Timothy. I'm I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to read this long list. But there are some things here... That may surprise you even. If you haven't looked at this list lately, sit down and consider the list and the last time you went over to Joel's house. Okay, my house too. Look at the list of things that deacons are supposed to be and consider the last time you were at Jared's house or or Justin's house or Nate's house. Are these men actually these things? Now, if they are, why aren't you imitating them? Now, (laughs) see how difficult that is for everyone. The gospel is equal opportunity dying to self. (laughs) I am not saying that your leaders are perfect. They're not. I can number the ways. But what I am saying is that God elevates certain men through their circumstances, through their education, through their understanding, through their willingness to serve, because he wants you to actually imitate them. It's not an accident that the deacons and elders of this church are, in fact, the deacons and elders of this church. And you're either going to follow that or you're not. They either need to be respectable or you need to chuck them. (laughs) Chuck them right out the door. The door opens both ways. Now, this is what I'm saying. Can you guys testify to the fact that I'm not violating Romans 2? You then, who, who teach others, do you teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, who is Paul talking to? We live in an age where what? How many scandals have we had? How many scandals were some guy who's at all the conferences, he's written all the stinking books, everybody's listening to him on the radio, and then we find out he's been stooping everybody in his entire church. Now, you're telling me the people in that church didn't know? Oh, then we find out that the people later on did know. And, and, we want, right? and we say that the problem is Biden, and we say the problem is the secularist, and we say the problem is CRT. The problem is the fact that we don't take our our responsibility to one another seriously in any fashion. Are the leaders of this church worthy of imitation or not? What are you going to do then? Now, a well-ordered church is a church where the leaders are taking holiness seriously where the people are actually taking holiness seriously and imitating them or calling them to a higher standard. The other reason you have a well, to have a well-ordered church is knowing who your tribe is and who it's not. Now, everyone here might think it's actually kind of funny if I did it, but if I went down to Alderwood Community Church and started telling them about how they have to shut down their children's programs and put all their kids (laughs) in a worship service, that might be funny for a few minutes, but that would be massively out of order, wouldn't it? And nobody, I mean, like, that, 
You're not supposed to do that. Just like if I came over to your house and I was like, well, hey, I'm here for an elder's visit, and I would like you all to demonstrate how you brush your teeth. Now, hopefully, somebody would call the police. Be like, our pastor has lost his mind. Right? There, there are spheres of sovereignty. We've been talking a lot about this. There are certain things the state can tell us to do and not. There are certain things that I'm supposed to tell you to do, and there are things that are none of my business. Now, because I don't want to confuse everyone here, think that I'm going to come over and start going through your Netflix queue and through your cupboard and through your phone. That's not what I'm talking about. In order to conduct ourselves in good order, you have to know who your people are, and, and that, those people need to know what the standard is. We have standards about public education and versus uh, Christian education. We have standards about husbands and wives and, and what their roles are in the home. We have standards for the way that we conduct ourselves in speech and clothing and what we do for a living, right? There's a lot of, Ill, right? If I found out somebody was a cocaine dealer, I might come and visit them. I'm not going to visit you, though, about how you brush your teeth. And I'm not going to go down the street and start doing elder visits at some church where I am not an officer because that would be out of order. The whole point of church membership is doing things in good order, conducting ourselves in good order, living a life worthy of imitating, imitating those lives worthy to be imitated. Philippians 3.17, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. This is the apostle speaking. This is Joel's responsibility and my responsibility. And it's the deacon's responsibility to make sure that this is what we're doing. We are the ones. It's not somebody else's responsibility. It says in Hebrews 13... 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Now, I'm a husband and a father, and one day I will stand before the divine judge, and he'll be like, you got to explain yourself. I'll be like, oh, my wife and kids are great. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're talking about all those people you were preaching a dead letter to all those years. That's the verdict I'm attempting to avoid, Right? I don't want you guys follow. If we're following a gospel that's not the Lord Jesus's, may this whole place burn down instantly. But it's it, we're we're playing with live ammo, and, and this is an age where Christians can realize it's it's time for us to realize that we are have got to stop playing house, playing church, and actually be the church. So what goes on in your house on some level is my responsibility because I've got to go before God and be like, well, you know, I didn't know he was beating his wife all those years. Well, did you ever go to his house? No, Jesus, I never went to his house. I never went to lunch with him. I never really talked to him ever at all. I don't even really know who my sheep are or not, says the guy in the mega church. Well, yeah, see, (laughs) and there's that dig. How about a guy who only has 28 families? Does he know all the people in his church? How are they doing? The responsibility goes both ways. What is it that is going on that you don't want to talk about? What is it, right? Either what you're suffering or the sin that you're committing and you can't, get, you can't get out of the trap. We have got to be able to give an account of what's going on in your household, just like we have got to be able to live a life worthy of imitation. It's a two-way street. And, and I need to know who I'm giving an account for. That's why I want a list of names. Right? Who am I actually responsible for? Okay, and you likewise should be like, well, who is it I'm supposed to be imitating? This is why you have membership. This is really, in my opinion, the only reason to do it. For good order. That's it. We have got to know who's who and what's what and what's the expectation. What are we building ourselves into? Right? If we step back and we actually thought about Redeemer Church, where are we at? If we, hold up the, right, if we hold up the word of God, the measure, Jesus himself, and we measured ourselves against it, how are we doing? What's wrong? What's going right? What are we to be thankful for? What are, ought we to repent of? If you held up the elders, can you imitate them or not? When, when we talk about it, there are people who we, at this moment, can't give an account for. And, and, and is that a problem? You, yes, that's what I'm saying. Everybody in this room has got to stop messing around with these things and take them more seriously. Now, does that require dying to yourself? Does that require grace? Does that require compassion? Does that require understanding? 
You know, there, there are a lot of things that we're fighting against outside of these four walls. And, and I honestly think that we're not always doing a great job of it because we're very bad at fighting about the things we need to in, inside the four walls. And what we need to do is speak truth to power, children to parents, wives to husbands, members to elders. The, the leaders in this church, all of us, need to take to examine ourselves and examine what's going on and, and find out why is it that we couldn't give an account for so-and-so at the moment. Who are we? Are we just a bunch of comfy, middle-class Americans who can afford to go to church? Right? It's, how much does it ever cost us to go here? It, are, it, right, given what's coming, is that going to suffice? Are we being, are we, were we born to a time, in an age, in a place, where being a Christian and not being a Christian, right, you're going to start actually seeing the differences in the households now. So is it time to get our house in order? Right? We're all about tribalism. We're all about nationalism. Right? Go Israel. Right? We're the people of God. Yeah. Woo. But how is the house of God? What, what are we offering the world? In, in ages past, the church was an ark in which people hid for the tumult that was going on outside. Are we that place now? Is this a place where we can confidently say, yeah, come here and live the Christian life and see what it looks like and be vulnerable with these people? You're going to be built up and you're going to build others up and it's going to grow into this glorious, beautiful, eschatological thing where we're all perfected. This is the place I belong. It's the place I go. It's the membership in which I am enrolled. Can we say that? If not, why not? Now, this, this is where I'm going to end, because th- what we're always talking about is the gospel. And this is why understanding these things is so important. Jesus said, you are mine. You are precious to me. You're offering things on my altar, and I'm accepting them as a sacrifice to me. What do you have to put on the altar, first off? Second off, are you precious in his sight? Are you precious in the, in, in the sight of the Lord? You are. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you've done. You are precious in the sight of the Lord. Right? Think of your baptism. Think of the meal that we're about to have. Where are you headed? You're headed to perfection and glory. Now, are you taking that seriously or not? And does it require grace and compassion and understanding? Let us go from here and let us consider our own lives, our own household, the household of Redeemer, and let us repent of what needs repenting and rejoice in what needs rejoicing in. Let us be the people of God, people who know how to be hammered and right? For the joy set before us, we're going to repent. We're going to die to ourselves because what we get is the life of Christ. What we get is joy in Christ. What we get is unity in Christ. All of those glorious things set before us. Let's do what needs doing. Let's die to what needs dying so that we can taste the fullness of the, of, of the Lord, so we can receive it and rejoice in it and focus on that and not ourselves. Let's do it together. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of your apostles. Lord, the foundation, we are sitting here at their feet today, Lord God. They imitated you. Your son was worthy of imitation. I pray, Lord God, that the leaders in this church would be worthy of imitation and that we would take that calling seriously, that the people of this church would, in fact, imitate their leaders as they imitate Christ, that they would build one another up in love, that we would continue to be um, sanctified and perfected, yearning and hoping for that day of glory. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name and amen.